Hey, Mr. Eddie, how are you? All right, I think we're about ready to begin. If you have your Bible, go ahead and be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 8. That's where we left off last time. Today we'll round out the section that is 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, where Paul is dealing with the issue of preacheritis and division in the Corinthian church. Now, much of what Paul has said up to this point in chapters 1 through 4 is going to continue to be an emphasis throughout. But really, this is where Paul has done the dirty work of trying to clean up their minds. The key verse in this whole section, really there too, is 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, where he says, that I want you all to speak the same thing. I want no division among you. Same mind, same judgment. And we're going to read the second one today, which is chapter 4 and verse 16, when he says, Brethren, be imitators of me and follow me. And he'll say something about bringing Timothy in verse 17. But today we'll end this. So chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, the first four chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians are all about this idea. Don't divide into various groups over preachers and don't be in various factions, but stick together. Chapter 4 deals with stewardship and really the way that preachers should be viewed. And so in the first seven verses, we did this last week, just a brief review. Paul says, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. That's verses 1 and 2. Let a man account of us as stewards of God's mysteries and servants for Jesus sake. And so Paul is saying instead of worshiping and dividing over Apollos and Cephas and me, he's saying, hey, we're really just servants. And now he'll end the chapter talking about the ministry of servants. Not only are the apostles servants and not celebrities, but there's a certain thing that a certain type of lifestyle that characterizes them. So let's begin. Let's start in verse eight and I'll read down through verse 13. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings and we would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst, we are poorly dressed and we are buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And so Paul is saying here, this is who we really are. We're not only servants, but what type of treatment had the apostles received? What is he describing in verses eight through thirteen? Persecution. Yeah, they're suffering. You remember Jesus in John 15 and verse 20. He says a servant's not greater than his master. And so if I've suffered, you're going to suffer as well. Paul uses some exaggerated language here about them being the filth of the world and all of that. And he's trying to make a comparison between how the apostles see themselves and how the Corinthians see them. The apostles, the apostles saw themselves as servants who were suffering and being mistreated. And this was really just a part of their ministry. They weren't. He's not complaining about it or wishing it was otherwise. He's just saying, hey, this is the truth true life of an apostle. This is what it's really all about. It's not what you think it is. It's not about popularity or fame. He says we've suffered in a egregious way. The apostles are not the object of their discussion among who is the best preacher, but they're saying, look at the sacrificial element of our service for Paul and the rest. What it meant to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ was to suffer for his sake. Look at Acts 14 and verse 22. 
Acts 14 and verse 22. And this is what Paul said to a group of folks on, on he and Barnabas' first missionary journey as they were circling back around to some of the churches. In verse 22, it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. And they were saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In John 16 and verse 33, Jesus says, my words, these words I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The New Testament emphasizes this idea of people that belong to Jesus, they will suffer. Now, there's one way the world views ministry and what a successful ministry looks like. What are some of the things that the world may view as successful in ministry or in Christianity? What would the world say is, hey, if you've got these marks, you're successful. Can you think of anything? Numbers, that's part of it. Yep, who's baptized the most? That's why Paul, you remember in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, I baptized Stephanus and Gaius and Crispus. I didn't worry about the rest. I don't remember who else. But sometimes the world emphasizes numbers. But Paul said, I'm not keeping a tally. What else would the world look at and say, hey, this is successful ministry? Large building? Big. Yeah, big. Yeah, big. A big building. Yeah, maybe that's a part of it. What else? Financial success. Contribution. Where did we get those markers that indicate, hey, this is somebody's ministry and this means they're successful? Where did those markers come from? The business world, they didn't come from the New Testament. Whenever Paul, and you can track this in Galatians, especially 2 Corinthians, whenever anybody puts Paul to the test in any way and they say, look, we don't believe you're a genuine apostle. Paul says, I don't like to normally do this, but if I must boast, Paul starts listing the things that make him a genuine and certified apostle. See 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 33. And what he often mentions in those lists is, I've been treated the worst, so I know I belong to Jesus. He lists the suffering, the persecution, the difficulty as some of the signposts that suggest that he really does belong to God. Now, we're not masochists. That means we're not people that just love pain for pain's sake. We don't want to just be beat up on just to be. But suffering is a part of Christianity. And this is what Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians. Why do we shy away from suffering when these early Christians embrace it? Why do you think we shy away from it? And how do we how do we avoid the martyr complex, which says, OK, I'm beat up every day. Things couldn't get any worse for me or the other extreme, which says I don't want to suffer at all. I'll do anything to avoid suffering. How do we sort of have a balance between those things? Because the New Testament emphasizes that if you belong to Jesus, what's going to happen to you? You're going to suffer. Look at Second Timothy, chapter three and verse twelve. Second Timothy three and verse 12, Paul's writing to Timothy about how things are changing for him and how he's being mistreated. But then he wants Timothy to be reminded, hey, you're not going to escape this either. In verse 12, yes. And all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer what? Persecution. You like suffering? No, right? Well, let's ask it another way. Do you love Jesus? Then you're going to suffer whether you like it or not, right? In various ways, all suffering isn't physical. We may not always find ourselves on the run and under physical persecution like Paul and company in the book of Acts. But there's going to be a certain suffering. And why is suffering in the Bible described, at least to some degree, as a positive, as a good thing? Why do you think that what does the Bible say about suffering that would make it tolerable for Christians? How can it be a good thing? It'll humble you. Suffering will do that. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. And perhaps the Holy Spirit leaves it ambiguous on purpose so that anybody who's ever suffering in any way could identify with Paul. What if the Holy Spirit would have said Paul had this thorn in the flesh and named it? Then people would say, well, 
I'm suffering. That doesn't apply to me. But Second Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit doesn't say it just said Paul had this thorn in the flesh. And then it says I was given this so that I wouldn't be exalted above measure and boast about revelations and all the great things I had so that I might know God's grace is sufficient. So suffering humbles us. But what else? What's another benefit to suffering? It strengthens you. Yeah. How does suffering strengthen us? Yeah, you do. You learn to lean more heavily upon God. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and difficulties. The trying of your faith produces patience and patience, endurance and endurance produces this perfection. It makes you a mature individual and it'll develop you. What about this one? Suffering makes us more like Jesus Christ. There are a few things in our lives that align us closer with Jesus than when we suffer. He was mistreated. He was lied upon. He was misrepresented. And when we suffer, we align with Jesus. The early apostles, when they suffered in Acts 5, they were persecuted and beaten. The Bible says they rejoiced. Acts 5, 40 and 41, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so Paul's telling the Corinthians, hey, we really suffer as apostles. We don't want to be worshipped and we don't want to be praised. They worked with their own hands. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 again in verse 12. Paul says we worked with our own hands. This would suggest that they were self-supported. Now, Paul wasn't always this way. They worked with their own hands among the Corinthians. Paul evidently saw ahead of time their carnal mind state and that they would divide over preachers. Now, he would accept contributions from the Philippians. He even accepted some from other congregations. But with the Corinthians, Paul said, I'll receive their support to support me while I'm here or I'll work with my own hands. But he didn't want to create a problem with the Corinthians because they had this big issue with loving preachers too much or having division over their favorite ones. And so. Notice again in this text in verse number um, about verse number 11, he says to the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and we are buffeted and we are homeless. We labor. And then in verse 13, he says we are slandered and we are mistreated. This all of this suffering is a temporary thing. Eventually, the tables will turn and they'll reign and rule like he mentions in verse eight. But for the time being. The lot of the apostles and the lot of Christians everywhere is to be willing to suffer for his sake. God doesn't have a problem with your exaltation or with mine. He wants us to eventually be exalted. But God has a problem with our timing. And so we have to wait on God to do it. And that's what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to see. In this next section, he talks about stewardship as their spiritual father. Notice verse 14 down through verse 20. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. But in order to admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And so Paul's writing all of this to correct them about what? What did we say? Chapters one through four were all about preachers. Don't be divided over preachers. But now he's coming to the end. And what Paul is saying is this. This isn't just good information. The Corinthians needed to change the way that they behave. And so Paul is saying, I'm your spiritual father. And I'm going to come and check on these things. Now, it's up to you how that meeting goes. But hopefully it'll be a positive meeting, one where I'll come and I'll see you're no longer in these different groups. You're no longer divided, that you fix these things. 
But Paul's saying in verse 14, I don't write these things to shame you. Paul didn't want to embarrass them. He wanted to do what? He wanted to warn them. Have you ever heard this said, or maybe you've said this before, you hear a sermon and you say, the preacher stepped on my what? Toes. What does that mean? The preacher stepped on my toes. Made me feel guilty. What was that? He got after you. Yeah, like he knows me, right? We sometimes think, how does he know what I'm doing, right? What, is, what else? The preacher stepped on my toes. What, what are we saying when we say that? Makes us look at ourselves. Dale? He pricked my heart. Yeah, modern way of saying what happened in Acts 2. He pricked my heart. He made it real. Is that what you, what you were going to say? Okay, yeah, he made it real. Biblical preaching is never designed, even the harshest lessons that people have to sometimes preach or the difficult lessons, it shouldn't be done in such a way to offend people purposely. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, convince, rebuke, and encourage. Those are the three things, convince, rebuke, and encourage. Two out of the three are negative, right? Rebuking and convincing people or to rebuke, exhort, and all of those things. Well, biblical preaching sometimes has to correct things we're doing wrong in our lives. Every one of us, as we encounter God's perfect word and we see our imperfections, those things are highlighted But it's not meant to offend purposely or to rile anybody up. And so Paul says in verse 14, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. The reason why he's writing these difficult things for them and challenging them is so that they'll fix it and so that they'll be better. If it made them feel bad, that's perhaps what they needed. But that wasn't the goal. Biblical preaching is designed to ultimately change the life and to make individuals better. Paul describes himself in verse 15. As their father in the gospel, he was the one that went and preached and talked to them. And then he lifts up an example. He's saying, look, you guys are divided over preachers. Look at verse 15. I'm your father in the gospel. But Paul also has another son in the gospel who is Timothy. And he says, be followers of me in verse 16. And I'm going to send somebody to you who has sort of figured this thing out about how to be a faithful disciple. And so in verse 17, I'm going to send to you Timothy, my beloved son and faithful in the Lord. And he'll remind you, you've forgotten these things. He'll remind you of my ways, which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So I'm your spiritual father. Be an example of me. But Paul is doing. Do you see what he's doing? Everything he can to help them fix the problem. He's written a letter. He's been an example when he's been among them. And now he's discharging Timothy so that Timothy can go and show them how it's done. Turn to Philippians chapter two. I just want to show you what type of person Timothy is in Philippians two. We're about to read what I think is Paul's highest compliment of anybody who worked with him in the first century. He really did love Timothy. Now, you read first and second Timothy. He seemed to be a timid guy, sort of shy. He was young to some degree. The word that's used to describe Timothy as far as a young man, first century terminology, he probably was in his 40s or somewhere around there. But notice what Paul says about him in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But, you know, Timothy's proven worth. How is a son with the father? He has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I will see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come as well. Paul had a lot of companions. Think about Titus and think about Silas and think about Barnabas. But when he wanted something fixed, he says something about Timothy. He doesn't say about anybody else. I have nobody else like him who would just naturally care for your state. Everybody else is concerned with their own interests. But Timothy will show you what true humility is all about. And in First Corinthians, it's the same principle. Hey, you guys need help. 
and I'm going to show you how it's done through my son in the gospel, Timothy. There's another nugget that we should appreciate in First First Corinthians 4 and verse 17. Paul says he's going to send Timothy, his beloved child and faithful in the Lord. And what's the last part? Timothy's going to remind the Corinthians about his ways in Christ. And then what does he say? He'll remind you of my ways in Christ as what? I teach everywhere in every church. You should underline that. Maybe circle that verse. Sometimes we talk to people and they say, well, that's just how your church does it. And you've got Paul's doctrine over here. And Paul didn't teach different things in different places. Paul taught the same thing in every church. So the Thessalonian church, church of Christ that we read about in first and second Thessalonians, Paul began that church in Acts 17. They had the same gospel. The Galatians, the churches of Galatia, they were taught the same thing. And the churches in Ephesus, Paul says, Timothy's going to show you how it's done. And Corinthians, this isn't personal. This isn't just about you. I teach the same thing everywhere and in every church. And so we don't have to have any. And that would be important in this section where people are divided. Paul saying, hey, stick together because that's how God wants the church to be designed or to be organized. And that's how he wants it to be. Paul challenges them. Because there are some that may be enemies of Paul in the Corinthian church, and they're stirring up this division. In verses 18 through 20, especially verse 19, he says, I'm coming soon to you, and we're going to see if you really changed or not. Paul says, some of you believe that I'm all talk, but I will come with action, and I will come with power. This last section in verse 19 through 20, when he says, I will find out about not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And he says in verse 21, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love or in the spirit of gentleness. What does this tell you about Paul when he corrected problems with churches? What does it tell you about how he went about doing things? He says, hey, I'm going to come and see whether you're all talk or about the power. And then he says, I want you to change. And it's going to be up to you when I come. Will I come with the rod of discipline or with the spirit of love? What does this tell us about how Paul viewed the congregations he worked with and what he wanted to see in them as a result? He wanted to see if they were genuine. Yeah, he wanted to see what was really in their hearts. What else? He did it with love. Yeah, Paul was always writing. And we say First Corinthians is probably the most troublesome church that Paul wrote to. The Galatians may rival them because of the false doctrine that was going on there. But Paul always had hope stretched out. Paul was always writing things in this tone. Hey, you guys have really messed this up. And I'm going to come. And I hope when I come, things have changed. I hope it's better. He always had this spirit of optimism about him. Hey, I want to come with the spirit of love. I hope to come gently among you. I really don't want to come and be overly aggressive. I hope I don't have to exercise apostolic power and authority. He was always hoping that the churches he wrote to would eventually turn the corner. That's a principle for us. We're not apostles. But as we try to help other individuals, as we think about this person isn't all that they should be, I want to try to turn them. Hold out the spirit of optimism and say, look, I know you can do better. I know you'll do better. I'm hoping to see things turn around for the good. Let me show you this briefly. Go to Hebrews 6. And this is just a brief aside. Then we'll finish chapter 4 and go into chapter 5. But in Hebrews 6, there's one of the harshest passages in the New Testament about apostasy, about people that could drift away from the Lord and be lost in a really an eternal way. But notice this Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. We talk a lot about this verse and what it means about people losing their soul. Verse 4 says it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Verse six, if they fall away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now stop there. 
We normally spend all of our time talking about that, the apostasy that may happen. And what does he mean by impossible in verse four and these people being forever lost? Right. But notice what he says in verse 10 or really in verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, the King James has we're persuaded better things of you. The ESV has we feel sure better things for you and things that belong to salvation. There's this harsh warning. Hey, you could be forever lost. You've tasted the goodness of the word of God. You know better. And if you fall away, you can't be restored. But then in verse nine, he says, but we wish better for you. You're better than this. What I've just described is not going to happen to you, is it? Because you're going to fix things. That's what Paul's saying in First Corinthians chapter four. He's saying, look, you guys are divided over preachers. I'm sending Timothy to hopefully help you fix things. And I hope I don't have to come in discipline. I hope things actually turn around. And when I show up, things are turned around for the better. And so we should learn something about Paul from correction, about correction and trying to help folks to come around to what God would have them to do. The Bible talks about this in Ephesians 4:15, speaking the truth in what? In love. We never have to sacrifice truth or love one for the other. Somebody says, well, he told the truth, but he didn't do it in love. Well, he really didn't tell the truth or he did it in love, but he didn't tell the truth. Those two things go hand in glove in the New Testament. Speaking the truth in love is what Christians are supposed to do. And so Paul concludes this section of division. And now he transitions into some of the more practical problems. Now, first Corinthians chapter five. Well, maybe I sent him the wrong PowerPoint. Yep. All hope is lost for those taking notes, but we still got the material. OK. All right. Chapter five. This is about the church's attitude towards sin. First Corinthians five is about the church's attitude towards sin. And it's about a specific situation that Paul will mention. Well, let's read it first. Verses one and two. This first section, if there was a title slide up there, would say the report and the reproach. First Corinthians five, one and two. Paul's going to discuss the report that they gave. That he received, but also the reproach that this brought on the church or the embarrassment. Verse one, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man to have his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so Paul has received this report probably from Chloe, the same person in chapter one who told him that the church was divided. And what is the issue now in Corinth? The first issue is four chapters long. It's the longest issue. He spends the most time on that issue, the division among them over preachers. What's the problem now in chapter five? Sexual immorality. And he says that in verse one, for a man to have his father's wife. And he says this isn't even done among the pagans. Even the Gentiles don't do this kind of thing. Now, you can read Romans one verses 18 through 32 and get a long list of all of the sins that were characteristic of the Gentile world. Homosexuality, idolatry, paganism, all of those things. But Paul says in first Corinthians five, one and two, you guys have the outsiders beat in this area. Now, in the sermon in Acts 2:47, we talked about having favor with all the people, making an impression on outsiders. Things like First Corinthians 5, 1 and 2 don't help with that. Paul says you're doing things that the Gentiles don't even do. And that is a man in the congregation is in a relationship with his stepmother. Now, this would have been condemned in the Old Testament. If you notice some passages like Leviticus 18, you can write this in the margin and check it out later. But Leviticus 18, 7 and 8 talks about this. A man shouldn't lay with his father, his father's wife or with his stepmother as his wife. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 30 and Deuteronomy 27 and verse 20 talks about how this was condemned in the old law and is likewise condemned in the new. The Gentiles are not guilty of this wickedness. 
and this man's stepmother, and they were having this relationship. But that's not all that Paul condemns, is it? Paul doesn't condemn merely the action. Surely the Corinthians would know that that's a problem. What is Paul really upset about? It's their attitude about it, right? Look at the text again in verse 2. And you are arrogant, the ESV, the old King James has, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned, right? So there's this arrogance about them. Why would they be puffed up about this? How could you imagine a church where this man kind of just waltzes in with his stepmother just together as a couple or just in fornication? Everybody in the church knows about it. Paul doesn't really describe the situation to them. He's at a distance, but he writes to them as if they know about it. How could they be puffed up about this? Why would they be? I can't think of a good reason either. Okay, so I don't know. But maybe it was something like this. Well, we're the church of grace and we're kind people and people. They just listen. Every one of us is going to sin. Right. Somebody has said the church is a hospital for sinners. That's right. But the church is not a museum for sinners. We don't just say, well, look at your brokenness and look at mine. And aren't we just all happy to be broken and sinful when we find out that we've done things that are wrong? We need to repent. None of us is going to be sinless. But we can never support, encourage or applaud it. And that's what Paul is angry about in First Corinthians five, one and two. It's their disposition toward the sin. Look, they couldn't stop this man from doing this. That's out of their control. But they shouldn't celebrate it. They shouldn't be having a party for this. Paul says you're puffed up. They should be having a funeral. You should have mourned. You should be grief stricken over what's taking place. But there's that's not the way that they are. Um, they were to put this wicked person from among them. Look at verse two at the end. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And, you know, the church should be known for several things. We should be known for the truth. We should be known for turning to God and away from sin. First Thessalonians one, eight through ten. We should be known for our love. John 13, 34 and 35. We should be known for being hardworking. And the church should also be known as a group of people who never tolerate or encourage sin. All right. So anybody among us that ever stumbles should always feel welcomed and know that he or she will be received and embraced and forgiven. Right. In the parable of the prodigal son, we're going to always be in the position of the father, not as the father, but have that disposition of heart willing to welcome and to receive. But we can't just say, well, that's not my business. I I don't see that. I don't know what's going on. Paul is against that. Daryl. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, John lost his head, didn't he? Yeah, he um, in the literal way. Right. Mark, chapter six, he spoke out against Herod and Herodias. But notice in Mark six. Well, let's just go there. I want you to see something about that since we bring up John and we're talking about. Remember, you can't control the person doing the sin, but you can speak out against the truth. Notice what the Bible says about about um, John and how Herod views him. Similar situation. Philip is married to Herodias, but they get split and then it's Herod and Herodias. And John says it's not lawful. You can't have your brother's wife. That's not right. And so he speaks out against it. And yes, John is eventually beheaded. But notice verse 19 of Mark six. Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. Now, note this last part. When Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed. Yet he heard him how? Gladly, I believe the King James or another translation has he loved to hear John preach. John often preached against him and the things that he was doing. But guess what? Herod loved to hear him. We can still preach the truth and try our best to correct and encourage people. Paul had just done this with the Corinthians. I hope to come to you in love and gentleness. But he couldn't applaud it and be God's person. Dennis. 
Yeah, we'll get to a list of things like that in a moment. But Dennis, I think that's right. Maybe he was influential and maybe he was a person of prestige, but they couldn't let this go just because of that. Right. Maybe he was somebody who gave a lot of money or was well known or something like that. But that wasn't a reason to compromise. It wasn't a reason to be harder on him either. But they couldn't just say, well, this is how it's going to be here. This is how it's done. The Corinthians were outdone by the Gentiles. That's a shame. Um, Sometimes today a congregation can be puffed up about sin. But like Dennis said, that that can't be us. Which member sin should grieve us? Which sin should bother us? All sin. But first our own. That's where this starts. Right. Before we can say, oh, yeah, this is about them. Right. You ever hear a sermon and think, where is she? She needs to hear this. She's right there in the pew. It's you. Right. You're the one that needs to hear it. Right. Every time you hear a sermon, there's somebody that needs to change. And it's the person you're looking in the mirror. It's not about those other. First is me. I'm the one that needs to hear it. And then maybe I can make an impact on somebody else. But we never get to say, well, that one wasn't for me. It didn't apply to me every sermon. And so the first person sin that I should be grieved over is my own. It's a personal thing, introspectively saying I need to do better. I can improve or I'm doing well in this area. I want to abound in this area. But we should be grieved over our own sin. And then we can hopefully help others. They were to put this evil man away from their company. Sometimes people have a problem with this. And churches have recently made the news. This has always happened, really, about practicing what we might call church discipline. Church discipline, as it's described in the New Testament, and there are several passages that talk about this. Second Thessalonians three, Romans 16, Titus chapter three and other passages that talk about when a person chooses to flagrantly sin and they will not repent. Paul says, put the evil person away from you. We'll talk about why that's the case and what Paul says. But just remember, church discipline is not kicking anybody out of the church. It's not our church to begin with. We can't kick them out of the church. We, we don't have God's permission to do that. But it's a principle that you see in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter seven. You remember Achan took what the Bible calls the accursed thing and he hid it in his tent. And Joshua's on his face weeping because they lost the battle at Ai, which they should have easily won. And God says, get up, Joshua. They're sending the camp. Put the evil person who's stolen what he shouldn't away from you. And then there's peace. Paul is sort of borrowing from that singing in that language. And he's saying, hey, I want you if this person is going to stay in his sin, I want you to put that away from you so that it doesn't corrupt the whole camp. And we'll see his discussion on that in a minute. But let me let's ask this question and then we'll get into some reasons and move down through the text. What happens when we fail to practice church discipline like this in the way that we should? What, what are some of the um, consequences, Dwight? Yeah, the congregation can't collapse if we don't do this like we should or when we should. Right. And so and if somebody says, well, I'm not going to rebuke sin or do anything about this because I want to be compassionate. They may call it that. But there's nobody that's ever been more compassionate than Jesus. Compassion is helping a person when they need help, and that help may manifest itself in different ways. Sometimes it's a hug, but sometimes it's a hard conversation. And so it's really not compassionate to say, hey, I know what you're doing is going to eventually wind you up in eternal hell, but I love you too much to say something. We may call that love or compassion, but biblically, it's really the worst thing you could ever do. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. Somebody else? Chuck? More about judgment in a minute. Yeah, we're going to say something about that. But that's right. Yeah, judge, they won't love with no judgment attached. We'll say something about judgment in a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody else? Somebody else at hand? Oh, Ms. Linda. 
Yeah. Go to 2 Thessalonians 3 on Ms. Linda's comment, which is exactly what Paul says, by the way, about how this is done. And be thinking about these two questions before, after we read this. If you've got something, we can discuss this. We talked about what happens when we fail to practice this. But here's another question we should ask ourselves. What happens if and when we rush into this? And what makes this difficult to practice? Because there's somebody who says we're never going to do this, no matter what anybody does. Right. And then there's somebody on this other extreme who says, if you blink the wrong way, we'll have your papers drawn up tonight. Right. And so that's unbiblical as well. Rushing in the truck. Some people are just heavy on the trigger. They can't wait to show you how sound they are and they're going to withdraw immediately. But that would be a wrong thing to do as well. Notice how Paul says this needs to be done in Second Thessalonians three and verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter or this epistle, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Same thing as first Corinthians five, different situation, but same thing. In verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn or admonish him as a what? Why warn him or admonish him as a brother? Because he's still a brother. That's why it doesn't matter what you couldn't behave yourself out of the family of God. Now, you can be erring and you can be lost in that regard, but you are never going to do something that's so egregious that we no longer call you a brother or sister, that you would no longer call me such. I couldn't do something that bad. I could lose my salvation and be lost. But at that moment, I would still just be an erring brother. Paul says, warn him, but do it as a brother. He wants him ashamed. That's part of the repentance in 14. But this is all to be done with the hope of we want to get him back Two, one and two. Yeah, I think that's right. A big problem with church discipline is it's not practiced consistently. Right. And so sometimes it's here, sometimes it's a little bit. And then when something big happens, we're like, OK, we got to get going with the the consistency part of it. No respect of persons for sure. But there needs to be a consistent practice. And um, well, let's go with the comments and then I'll say something about church discipline. Yeah, that's right. I was going to save it for later, but we can talk about this now. Remember. Church discipline is not merely the withdrawal of fellowship. If we're doing things right, and the Bible never says withdraw fellowship either. It just says withdraw from the person because when a person chooses to live in sin and away from God, I know it's semantics and it's a technicality. But when I say, "Okay, I'm going to just do this sin over here and I won't repent, I'm already out of fellowship with God. We don't take and give fellowship. It belongs to God. First John one and verse three. We merely are acknowledging what heaven has already said is the case. We're saying, hey, God says this person's living this way. We can't approve of him. And so, hey, I'm going to withdraw from from him so that I can show God I'm for him. But we still can admonish them as a brother. We still want to love them and be kind and gentle, because when they do come to their senses, they're going to come back to the first person who has shown compassion and who was present. But here's something to remember about church discipline. It is not merely the withdrawal of fellowship. It's a hundred smaller conversations that happen before that's ever necessary. You can discipline a person biblically without ever withdrawing fellowship. That's really the last resort. We hope it doesn't get there. Right. And so don't make this the first conversation you have with somebody. You've never talked to them before. And you say, if you don't straighten up, we're through with you next week. Right. Hopefully we've been building a relationship. And that's what makes this work, by the way. Right. You pull away from somebody you've never talked to. You say, hey, we're not dealing with you until you get your act straightened up. Well, I haven't talked to you anyway. And so that's won't bother them. Hopefully we can be the people God wants us to be in a consistent way so that it actually you miss it when you say, hey, if you, you got to straighten this out and I want you to do this so that you can be say, Harold. Oh, go ahead. Go, you stop. Go ahead. 
Yeah. We should be saying, if this were me, what would I want to be done? If I'm in my right mind, if this was my situation, how would I want to be treated? Could very well be me, right? That's the point of Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Consider yourself, because it, it could be you. Think about how you would want to be restored. The word that's used in Galatians 6 about restore such a one is a Greek term that was sometimes used for setting a bone back in place. So you just imagine you've broken your bone. What kind of doctor do you want? You want anesthesia or you just want him to say, well, let's just set this thing back right. Is that what you want? Well, when your life's that way, when you find your life out of the way because of sin, do you want spiritual anesthesia? You want somebody to come alongside and say, look, I maybe have never fallen in the way that you have. I hate that you're in this situation, but I want to restore you in the spirit of gentleness. I'm not going to prove what you've done. I'm not going to applaud it. But let's get back with the Lord. It's going to take a long time. This isn't going to happen overnight, but I'm going to walk with you as far and as long as it takes. That's considering yourself. It's hard for a person. People do it. But it's hard for a person to turn away from that kind of love expressed on a continuous basis. And that's what Paul's driving at. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the New Testament doesn't give a detailed list of what the withdrawn are not allowed to do anymore. Think about this. This could be a woman or a man. And so how would this look if this were a female who is withdrawn from? There's no itemized list. That might be some of the manifestation proof that, hey, you've been withdrawn from. You once led prayer, led singing. And as long as you're in this, you know, impenitent state, we won't let you serve. That would be a part of this. What we want to do with anybody in this point when we pulled away from them in a disciplinary function is to say we're not going to approve of your lifestyle and we're not going to do anything that would suggest that we do. But we can still talk to them, I would hope. Right. Because how are you going to know when they repent? Paul says, warn them, admonish them as a brother. You don't break off all lines of communication whatsoever. You're hoping to get a person back. Notice verses three through five. Um, Paul says, for though I'm absent in body, here's the judging part. I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this guy who's with his stepmother, Paul says, I'm not there, but I figured this out already. And you can, too. You weren't there. This is just wrong with a capital W. Right. This just shouldn't be happening. So Paul's saying, I'm as if I'm with you already and I've judged. Now, the New Testament warns us about a certain kind of judgment. Matthew seven, one through five. It's actually one of the top ten verses that people in America know, by the way. Judge not that you be not judged. But John seven, twenty four says, judge what kind of judgment? Judge a righteous judgment. Now, we may think we're better at that than we really are. But the Bible still says we need to judge some things. And a judgment doesn't mean pronouncing condemnation. I think I know that's God's responsibility. But a judgment just means to make a decision about a situation. And if we do it righteously, it's impartial and it's based on the best evidence that we have. Paul says, based on what I know and how you all are behaving, I've judged already. What does he mean when he says deliver this one over to Satan? What does that mean? Verse five, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Okay, let me ask maybe uh, Roger, you got me? Yeah, let him go. Sometimes the best thing we can do for a person who wants to live away from God is to let them go. Look at Romans one. We're almost out of time. Romans one. Dwight, go ahead. Turn to Romans one. Yeah. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Look at Romans 1 and notice what Paul writes in three verses. And we are out of time. But anyway, I just want to show you the best thing. When Paul says deliver them over to Satan, he's saying, hey, let them have their way. Three times God is going to give up on people if they won't do what he wants. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's the first one. But then Romans 1:26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then again in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Three times in Romans one, God says, I gave them up. I gave them up. I gave them over. God didn't give up on them, but he's saying, I'm going to let you go the way that you want. And Paul says in first Corinthians five and verse five, we're out of time for the destruction of the flesh so that it might save their soul. It's just a parable, but the point still comes home, doesn't it? And Luke 15, the father has to let the young man go. He just needs to taste the far country for himself. If he really wants to go, he would only truly find himself in the pig pen. And then the Bible says he came to himself and he came home. He wanted to go. His father let him go. And then he came home and he appreciated what he really had. Interest at heart. Yeah. I'm going to say one more thing, then we're going to dismiss the class because we may not pick right back up in this exact spot next week. We've got to pick up speed. If you're wondering about this, well, what about church discipline? And this seems harsh to me or I don't know. I just want God ordains it. That's why we should do it. Number one. But the second thing to appreciate is in the case of this individual, it worked. Read second Corinthians chapter two, verse 11. This man was brought to repentance. He changed. And Paul's able to write a good report in second Corinthians because the Corinthians did what he said. And this man was restored. But whether they ever come home or not, church discipline always works because it's what God wants us to do as we warn people. And try to hopefully turn them back to him. Thanks for a good Bible class. And we will pick up next week.